Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends and neighbors. It's Friday, February 26th, around 8.30 in the morning in Washington, D.C. Welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Well, we begin today with breaking news on several fronts. First, the FDA is expected to give final approval today to the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine, America's third anti-COVID vaccine, and the first one in only one shot. Second, the Senate parliamentarian ruled that the $15 minimum wage does not qualify for consideration under reconciliation, meaning it'll have to be considered in a separate Senate bill. Third, American missiles struck targets in Syria last night, the first military operation under the Biden administration. All of this as the world waits with a combination of curiosity, disgust, and outright fear for whatever Donald Trump is going to say at CPAC this weekend on Sunday afternoon. So much to talk about, so little time, so let's jump right in with Leah Escarinam, editor of the National Journal Hotline. Hello, Leah. Hi, Bill. Maya King, politics reporter at Politico. Hi, Maya. Hi, Bill. And Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama and Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Hello, Chris. Hey, Bill. All right, guys, let's start off. Um, We found out, I guess, that the most powerful person in the United States Senate is not Chuck Schumer and it's not Mitch McConnell. It's a woman by the name of Elizabeth McDonough, uh, the parliamentarian who ruled yesterday that reconciliation uh, rules would not allow uh, the minimum wage hike to be part of the stimulus bill. So, Leah, what's what's was this unexpected, and what's this mean? So it's not necessarily unexpected. We talked for a while before Democrats ultimately sealed their Senate majority by winning that Georgia race, that whatever the outcome was, the Senate was going to be an incredibly close call. And that's going to make it difficult for Democrats or Republicans to pass their agenda. Now, this is a kind of procedural um, hiccup that Democrats are going to have to deal with occasionally. It's not something that's going to happen frequently necessarily. Um, But in terms of passing a major uh, relief package like this COVID package, um, it basically prevents them from putting things in there that they would like to see passed in a bigger package that they're going to have a really hard time passing individually. And that's not just because of Republicans. That's also because of uh, concerns about hiking up the minimum wage from Democrats in their caucus as well. Uh, Chris, I found it interesting that yesterday, the very same day Elizabeth McDonough ruled, Costco announced that it was raising its minimum wage to $16 an hour. Uh, As former Secretary of Labor, uh, make the case for a $15 minimum wage federal federal level. 
Well, let me also say, as somebody who spent four years in the Senate, uh, the, the decision by the parliamentarian is not unexpected, and it's certainly a nonpartisan office. And so I respect the decision she made, even if I'll, I did disagree with the consequences. So we have not increased the federal minimum wage since July of 2009. That is now the longest period in U.S. history we've gone without a federal minimum wage increase. It is $7.25 an hour, and I defy anybody to go out uh, and try to uh, raise a family on $7.25 an hour. And it's frankly one of the reasons why Washington is so far behind where everyone else is. I think something like 29 states now have a higher minimum wage than $7.25, as you pointed out. Companies like Costco and Target and Amazon have all gone to that $15, or in the case of Costco, $16 an hour. Even at $15 an hour, I think it's fair to say um, that is not certainly a, a luxurious lifestyle that anyone leads. And so it's unfortunate it won't happen as part of the reconciliation process, but it is important to understand that there's popular support for this idea. Um, I think I checked like 25 times, the last 25 times the minimum wage has been uh, a state ballot initiative. It is one, and it wins in very, very red states like Florida and Arkansas. Well, Amaya, I want to ask you about that, the politics of it, because so obviously what they'll do is drop this out of the stimulus package, which will still be close to $1.9 trillion, and move that through with Republicans still in lockstep opposed to it. And yet, I checked again this morning, that measure, the $1.9 trillion, is like 78% popular among the American people, Republicans and Democrats. What are, Repu what are Republicans thinking by opposing this uniformly across the board? Well, a number of Republicans that my colleagues have spoken to have said that this $1.9 trillion is just a little bit too expensive and that they should sort of aim for more piecemeal alternatives instead of trying to go out with this huge amount of money that could potentially send the government into some, some major form of debt, though Democrats, of course, have pushed back to say that's not, that's not really the case. And I think but, to Chris's point— Let me, if I can— uh, and I know you're not, that's not your point of view necessarily, but what I don't get is if they're serious about somewhere in the middle, why do they come up with $600 billion and then not move from that? That's less than a third of what Biden had proposed. So are they really serious about compromising or they just have dug in their heels? Well, I think it's more the latter, and I think it's more just some some very um, raw partisanship that we're seeing on display here. Because you're right, this is a lot of the measures in this bill have very strong bipartisan support on the ground. I mean, even in Joe Manchin's home state of West Virginia, and he's been someone who has proposed, you know, the eleven dollar just um, a minimum wage instead of fifteen. But folks in his home state, which is also overwhelmingly red, have also been in support of a fifteen dollar minimum wage. I think. You know, what this boils down to is that people really want relief um, and people are really hurting at this moment now one year into this pandemic. And so, yes, at a time like this, a measure that would give people more money has absolutely overwhelmingly bipartisan support. Um, but last night was certainly a blow. I mean, in thinking about the political implications of this to the progressive wing of the party, $15 minimum wage was something they were really banking on, hoping that they could deliver for their constituents on. Um, and now that's sort of, you know, going going to be a little bit more difficult for them to accomplish, especially with the filibuster still in place. So, you know, it gives Democrats more to consolidate around with the with the current um, $1.9 trillion bill that I suppose will be a little lower than that at this point, um, but certainly sets up for future battles as well. 
So that's what they'll do, Chris, right? They'll just they'll come back with a separate bill and and try to get it through uh, at, at some lower level, as high, I guess, well, as high I, as they can. Yeah, I mean, Maya correctly points out, I mean, there is sort of people gravitating towards, I think Romney put out a bill this week and Hawley sort of suggesting something like an $11 uh, minimum wage. I will also tell you, while this is, I think, bad for the millions of Americans who would get a pay raise, um, as a political issue, it's a pretty resonant political issue. And to actually later on in the session, bring up a clean bill to raise the minimum wage in some ways is a more potent political weapon. Right. Uh, the other bit of breaking news, Leah, let's go back to uh, COVID-19. We saw two uh, memorable events at the White House this week, um, which were noted by the president. Uh, one was the fact that 500,000 Americans have now died when we passed that milestone. Uh, the president and the vice president and their spouses had that very moving uh, moment of silence on the South Lawn of the White House. Uh, and then yesterday, the president noted uh, the uh, injection of the 50 millionth vaccination since he took office. Uh, quite a contrast with uh, the way the previous administration dealt with the COVID thing. Here's a little montage of three voices you will recognize from the previous administration uh, in, in their comments about COVID-19. We have contained this. We have contained this. I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. This president will always put America first. He will always protect American citizens. We will not see diseases like the coronavirus come here. We will not see terrorism come here. And isn't that refreshing when contrasting it with the awful presidency of President Obama? Kaylee McEnany, thank you so much. If it ends up that Biden wins in November, I guarantee you the week after the election, suddenly all those Democratic governors, all those Democratic mayors will say, everything's magically better. Go back to work, go back to school. Suddenly the problems are solved. You won't even have to wait for Biden to be sworn in. All they'll need is election day and suddenly their willingness to just destroy people's lives and livelihoods, they will have accomplished their task. That's wrong, it's cynical, and, and, and we shouldn't be a part of it. So Leah, uh, on, in terms of the pandemic, it is a different day at the White House. Absolutely, the most striking thing to me about that ceremony that President Biden held at the White House to commemorate the 500,000 deaths uh, in America uh, was that he basically urged Americans not to feel numb to this kind of massive loss. Uh, basically, you know, said that this is the kind of tragedy that we should be able to feel and that we need to continue to feel, which is an incredibly different approach to the last administration, which was, you know, life has to go on um, and this isn't going to be something that, that dictates your day to day. Um, Obviously, it's a little bit easier for Biden because there are uh, signs that we're actually on our way out of the woods. How, how far we still have to go is a, is a bigger question. Right. Uh, and Maya, a big sign that we're on our way is the Johnson & Johnson, which, again, not quite approved, but it looked like it definitely will be maybe as early as later today. Uh, and that's just a single shot. And that's the third vaccine. I mean, so... Uh, maybe we are, to borrow a phrase, turning the corner? 
I, I think we can perhaps very cautiously say that that is on the horizon. Um, at 11 this morning, the White House COVID-19 task force will have um, another press conference to update the media and um, and the American people on this White House's progress on getting people vaccinated and just really, I think, giving folks um, another benchmark to understand just where we are in this, in this fight against the virus. I think the biggest thing that health experts and others were saying was, you know, we need, as long as we have vaccines, people need to get vaccinated, especially with the threat of other variants in the country um, that could perhaps, you know, overtake uh, our progress that we've made so far. And a number of people have been nervous because the Johnson & Johnson vaccine appears to be um, uh, a little bit less effective against preventing the virus. But I think the important thing to remember is, one, that any vaccine that's available and that's safe, you know, folks should still get it. That's been the messaging from from healthcare um, experts from the beginning. And two, that while you know it does seem like it's less effective against contracting the virus, it still is extremely effective against hospitalization, extreme sickness, and death. And so these are all things, of course, that we would want to avoid, especially now if it does appear that we're turning a corner finally almost a year into this pandemic um, and fighting against this virus. Right. And, and I think we, we all um, have to, uh, we, we see, we recognize, we accept that this is by far mainly a public health crisis, but it also has its political dimension, Chris. And the, the president noted that this was uh, this week, yesterday it was, the 50 millionth vaccination since he took office, right? That's a total 68 million, but 50 million since he took office, which is halfway to his goal. He's 40, what, 40 days in, 35 days in, halfway to his goal of 100 million. So I guess what I'm saying, Chris, politically, um, this is the priority also for the Biden administration. Correctly so, correct? Right. A absolutely. I remember having been in the Obama White House that first, uh, well, those first couple of years, we actively resisted the media's 100-day narrative because we were in the middle of the Great Recession. We continued to say there's no way we can dig ourselves out in 100 days. We ended up giving in to that narrative because you just it's unavoidable. What's impressive about what the Biden people are doing is they're kind of leaning right into that narrative. They very aggressively said, 100 million when they started uh, by 100 days, um, when they got a little bit of pushback that maybe the 100 million wasn't aggressive enough, Biden then said, well, you know, it might be a million and a half per day. They're going to blow right past that 100 million. Uh, and so I, I give them credit. It, they, they put out a very uh, ambitious goal. They challenged their team to meet it. Um, they will blow through it. And they're not just stopping and taking a victory lap. And you certainly didn't hear that from uh, the president this week. If, if anything, you heard that, you know, the fight continues, that there's going to be continued pain. We need to continue to be vigilant. And I think that's the right way that they're setting the tone. We're going to set goals. We're going to meet the goals, but we're going to keep pushing. Right. So let's accept uh, that none of the four of us are a uh, military expert or a foreign policy expert. Uh, but there's still a couple of items in the news that uh, I'd love to get your, your, your thoughts on. Uh, the first is that last night we, we, the Pentagon announced uh, military strikes against um, some Iranian-backed mil um, uh, militia inside of Syria, uh, taking out some buildings there in response to an attack a week or so ago 
against an American installation where um, an American contractor was killed and uh, American serviceman was wounded. Uh, the first military uh, operation by the Biden administration, not announced ahead of time, uh, quite secretly done. Leah, what message do you think this Biden's trying to send here? Well, it's definitely the first um, indicator of what the Biden foreign policy agenda is going to look like. And obviously, it's still early. It's one action. But uh, I, I mean, I do think that this is the beginning of us trying to figure out where Democrats as a whole are going to lie on, on foreign policy, um, and especially when it comes to intervening in other countries. When uh, during the Trump administration, the one area where Republicans would depart from Trump's uh, Trump, the Trump doctrine is when it came to foreign policy and actually when it came to having troops in Syria. Um, so this is one of those issues where I do wonder if we're going to start seeing Biden uh, starting to talk to senators, starting to work across the aisle, having an option to work across the aisle where he has not been able to when it comes to things like domestic policy and, as we mentioned earlier, the minimum wage. Yeah. And, you know, Maya, um, uh, reading President Obama's memoir, uh, This Promised Land, um, he's talked several times where uh, where it was Biden who would argue against uh, military operations. He even he wasn't even crazy about going after Osama bin Laden. He cautioned, you know, that might have been a mistake. So th this is a, maybe a different Biden than we thought, one who's not a, not uh, reluctant to use military force when necessary. Yeah, I think this is certainly um, a, a notch up, you know, in terms of the approach to foreign policy from Vice President Biden, who might have been a bit more cautious, to now President Biden, who remains a little bit more cautious, but is very, of course, as we like to use in our references to the Biden administration, um, steady-handed in his approach to these things. And my colleagues have a take on this this morning that says that this is sort of the medium option um, for the Bi for Biden to take in choosing how he would like to respond. Um, to this attack. And so it wasn't, you know, an overly aggressive move that might have really shaken things up. It's uh, very strategic, I believe, to decide to strike in Syria instead of Iraq and cause any issues there. Um, and it's really just more, I think, sending a message that this is a an administration that, of course, is not going to um, take the same sort of uh, over-the-top aggressive approach that perhaps the Trump administration did a few times, particularly in the Middle East, but will certainly send a message that, um, you know, it's this is not an administration that will uh, be walked over either and that will still, you know, do its do its part to try to protect um, what it considers American interests in that region. Uh, so in terms of sending a message, Chris, uh, there's another part uh, in actually also in the Middle East where the president sent a pretty clear message this week. He had a conversation with the king of Saudi Arabia, not with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And reportedly, later today, uh, the director of national intelligence is going to release a report uh, that says that the crown prince himself, MBS, ordered the killing of Washington Post uh, columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, that's a different approach, a different message to Saudi Arabia, Chris. Well, that's exactly right. And I think it's also important to understand, I mean, this the assessment by the intelligence community that Khashoggi was uh, assassination was orchestrated by the crown prince is something that's been out there for a long period of time. What is new about this is that 
these results, these reports have never been published. Um, and so I think that is certainly significant. And I think it sends the message that we're going to have an intelligence community that's going to base its facts and base its decisions on what it sees instead of the politics. And I think that's a reassuring thing. Yet, I also think um, it's important to maintain these relations with Saudi Arabia, which is why uh, President Biden will be speaking to Saudi leaders, but not to the crown prince. And so, again, I think it's what Maya said. I mean, it's kind of a moderate middle approach. It's conventional. It's the way that um, any previous president before President 45 would have handled a situation like this. All right. So let's take a quick break and then we'll come back, uh, come back to uh, our land and the what might be called the civil war inside the Republican Party, which is going to be in full display starting later today in Orlando when CPAC opens its doors for its annual conference. Uh, we'll continue with our roundtable with Chris Liu from the Miller Center, Leah Scaranam from the National Journal Hotline, and Maya King from Politico. Uh, quick break and we'll be right back. For today's panel, we ask you to jump in and do an important public service. You know, Donald Trump left us with two fences, not just one. We've got that great big border wall down on the southern border. We've also got this wall, this ugly razor top wire, razor wire top fence around the United States Capitol, the, the House and Senate office buildings, and the Library of Congress, thanks to Donald Trump after January 6th. The, National, the Capitol Police now want that fence up around the Capitol forever, and millions of Americans are saying, no, 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 this is the people's house. Take down that fence and give us access to the Capitol. That's certainly a position I support. And I ask you to as well, and it's easy to do so, just go to the website, don'tfencethecapitol.com, don'tfencethecapitol.com, and sign that petition is very, very important. The House and the Senate are going to be considering what to do about the fence. Look, for over 200 years, Americans have had access to the People's House, and it shall continue. Take down that fence. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Leah Skaranam from the National Journal Hotline, Maya King from Politico, and Chris Liu, a former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. So uh, Republican conservatives gather in Orlando for the CPAC convention. One of the big questions still is, for them, uh, what do we do about Donald Trump? Do we stick with him or would he kind of try to move on? Uh, It was a little embarrassing in the House this week when Kevin McCarthy was giving a, a little news conference with his leadership behind him. And someone asked the question of a House Minority Leader McCarthy whether or not the president should be speaking at CPAC and then ask Congresswoman Lynn Cheney the same question. Uh, here's that little exchange. Do you believe President Trump should be speaking, or former President Trump should be speaking at CPAC this weekend? Yes, he should. Congresswoman Cheney? That's up to CPAC. I've been clear in my views about uh, President Trump and, and the extent to which following the extent to which following January 6th, uh, I don't I don't believe that he should be playing a role in the future of the party or the country. On that high note, thank you all very much. On that high note, move on. So, uh, Maya, Republicans, are are they split or has the Trump faction won? Is the Civil War over? Well, I think— I think that that exchange was really representative of where the Republican Party finds itself, which is not quite in lockstep. Um, And I think it's safe to say that it's still very much split. I don't know if it's quite a civil war, but what everyone in the Republican Party, especially its leaders and folks like McCarthy and like Cheney are are trying to do is figure out where they fall in this party now, whether they are in the MAGA Trump wing or whether they're more aligned with the I suppose you could call it the Cheney, um, almost never Trump wing of the of the Republican Party, or whether it's possible to sort of find yourself in like, I guess, the Nikki Haley's wing of the party somewhere in the middle of not quite alienating yourself from Trump, but also being willing to distance yourself from him um, on the things that you disagree with him uh, most most strongly on. And I'm not sure if that's a survivable uh, section of the party to be in at this point, um, if there's if you come out unscathed. But, you know, the folks who are really thinking about this and making these calculations, of course, are those those groups of Republicans who are thinking about running for president in 2024. And that's even further complicated by Trump himself, who really still has an opportunity to run again as well. So, you know, the Republican Party, I think I'm I'm still trying to figure out what the GOP version of Dems in disarray is, and if (laughs) if it's GOP civil war, if it's Republicans, I don't know, not Republicans not in lockstep, but I think the 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 factor here that is really, of course, the divider that's got all of these Republicans, even at the top levels now of the party, so confused or at least, um, you know, so kind of out of out of league with one another is is Trump and what will happen in the next four years. Well, Leah, if there's a civil war inside the Republican Party, there seems to be a civil war inside the head of some Republicans. Uh, I'm thinking about Mitch McConnell, who can't sort of decide which side of this fence he's on. Here, here back to back, 
first of all, is Mitch, Mitch McConnell, with his impassioned, a little clip from his impassioned speech on the Senate floor, uh, at, right after the impeachment vote, where he voted not to impeach, of course. Uh, and then yesterday on Fox News with Brett Baer, ask about Trump in 2024. Uh, let's listen to them back to back and see if you can explain it. They stormed the Senate floor. They tried to hunt down the Speaker of the House. They built a gallows and chanted about murdering the Vice President. They did this because they'd been fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth. Because he was angry, he lost an election. Former President Trump's actions preceded the riot for a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. If the president was the party's nominee, would you support him? Uh, the nominee of the party? Absolutely. So, Leah, which is it? <laughs> so, I actually don't think it's that contradictory. And here's why. Mitch McConnell is going to do whatever he thinks is most politically expedient to reach his policy goals. And so if period, right? Period. period. Absolutely. And so if the 2024 presidential race comes down to Joe Biden or another Democrat against Donald Trump, then Donald Trump is going to be the quickest, most efficient way to get to those goals. Um, on the other hand, I think it's really interesting that Mitch McConnell and Liz Cheney are coming out against the idea of forming the party around Trump as a political strategy. And that's because they are two of the most politically motivated members of Congress. Yep. Um, they are ambitious. Liz Cheney is not trying to lose her seat. He's trying to climb the ranks in the House. And so I think their primary goal is to steer the party away from Trump for the survival of the party. However, if that's not possible they'll try their best to kind of ram through uh, the current Republican Party, which is going to be really tough to maintain with such a small um, coalition that, that's shrinking. Well, it looks to me uh, like they've, for the most part, uh, other than people like Ben Sasser, Mitt Romney, and uh, Liz Cheney, that the party, particularly at the state party level, is sticking with Donald Trump, which Chris uh, in 2022 and 2024, that's not necessarily bad for Democrats, is it? No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think what we don't know right now is what the impact of Trump, even before we get to 2024, what the impact will be starting in 2021. Uh, I live in Virginia and we have a governor's race coming up and there's sort of a more centrist Republican against a more uh, Trumpian Republican. You know, what we saw during the Trump era is that when he is not on the ballot, Republican candidates tend not to do well. When he is on the ballot, he has the ability to pull people across the finish line who might not otherwise be able to do that. What we don't know is what happens in a post-Trump world, particularly a post-Trump world where he does not have access to social media. You know, I was struck by, you know, he endorsed um, Jerry Moran uh, yesterday for um, for Senate, you know, through a press release uh, issued through, um, I guess, through his uh, campaign operation. And it didn't really get much attention because it's a press release. And, and so uh, it, it, he will certainly have money. Um, he will certainly have influence. Uh, but, you know, I think as Leah said, the, the Republican coalition is actually getting smaller and smaller right now. Um, and, and the more these divisions happen, it does make it challenging for them to build uh, a winning coalition going forward. Maya, there has been some talk among some Republicans uh, of just giving up on today's Republican Party and starting a third party. Is that at all realistic? 
Well, I think I was, I think under Trump, it's, it's, it's realistic. I mean, he easily could sort of pick up his sandbox and take it somewhere else with all of his supporters and try to do, to go after what they're calling, I believe, a Patriot Party um, to figure out, you know, a way to sort of, I guess, channel this sort of MAGA energy into a way that um, could create a third party. But you know, I I don't cover Republicans regularly, but in my understanding of them and having seen this president over the last four years, I don't know if that's really an effective strategy, just because at the same time that Republicans and a number of um, members of Trump's base still remain extremely loyal to him, you know, that number is also shrinking just still under Biden, I believe. If, if he can really pass this stimulus bill and prove to people that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. And a number of the Republicans who sort of held their noses and voted for him um, in November of 2020, I'm not saying they'll coalesce behind him and become Democrats, but I'm not sure if that's, you know, if that if that's going to also push them into this third Trump Patriot Party either and in a substantive enough way for that to really make a difference. So, Leah, uh, CPAC, starting today, uh, a lot of their panels and everything are focused, no surprise, on how the election was stolen and how we're going to deal with this election fraud and blah-blah-blah leading up to Trump's speech on Sunday. What do we expect from Trump on Sunday? Is this the big 2024 announce? So this is, <laughs> I feel like we used to do this all the time during the actual Trump presidency, where we're like, what is he going to talk about? Because we never know what he actually does when he gets on a stage, if he follows the teleprompter or does his own thing. Um, we know that Republicans are urging him not to further divide the party. Um, but what is he actually going to do? I don't know. I mean, it seems like he still definitely has grievances against members of his own party. Oh, yeah. Um, and is possibly angrier at, you know, Liz Cheney than he is at, you know, Nancy Pelosi at this point. Um, and so that would obviously not help Republicans further their goals. Um, I wouldn't expect to have a, a major announcement at this point. I would actually ex probably expect Trump to hold off as long as possible in explaining what his next steps are going to be. He has a couple of legal battles ahead of him. Um, in the next four years, a, a lot can change you know, in, in four years, um, as we saw between 2016 and 2020. Um, but as long as he's able to kind of hold this decision, he's able to remain relevant and ultimately freeze the Republican field and prevent other Republicans from getting into the 2024 race. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of other um, uh, political sort of tangential issues that uh, I'd love to get your take on before we uh, wrap up and get to your favorite stories of the week. Uh, Chris, what difference, what a difference a year makes. A year ago, we were all celebrating Governor Cuomo of New York as the outstanding leader. I think uh, then Vice President Biden called him the gold standard when it comes to governors dealing with COVID. Um, today, to Governor Cuomo uh, in a lot of trouble on, on several fronts. Um, he wants another term uh, to match his father, right, as a governor of New York. Um, do you think it's uh, his chances are slim to none now? Well, I never say slim to none. I mean, as you just pointed out, uh, a year is a lifetime in politics. And so who knows what six months another year uh, does going forward. I, I do think this issue, um, look, there, there's a bunch of things flying around involving Governor Cuomo. I do think this nursing home death issue is a serious issue um, that really ought to be looked into. Um, 
that being said, it, it is um, it is not unique that New York City had a large number of nursing home deaths. That was certainly the case, I think, in every state in the country. It's a tragedy. It's something that needs to be looked into. Um, it really was one of the ways that the pandemic um, spread so quickly in the early days. But from a um, rapid response messaging uh, strategy perspective, this has not been uh, politics 101 of how you would do it from the Cuomo perspective. That being said, we have a long way before he has to run for re-election again. Right. Uh, again, what a difference a year makes. Maya, a year ago, uh, everybody was talking about the Lincoln Project as one of the most uh, successful and uh, kind of different sort of political operations that we'd seen by this bunch of outliers, non-Trumpers, uh, who had really shaped the um, the messaging, uh, if you will, of the 2020 race. And today, the Lincoln Project falling apart and may not survive. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely kind of turned into a, a, a disgraced organization. Um, my boss, John Harris, has a really great item um, out in Politico yesterday that just says the best way to fix the Lincoln Project is to just scrap it all together. Yeah, right. Um, and I think perhaps for them to save face, that might actually be the most viable option. I mean, this was something that you're absolutely right. A year ago, we were um, a number of people, I should say, were championing and saying that this is sort of a really good opportunity to raise money, get into Trump's head and and defeat him. And then all of the details that have come out of this this scandal from the way that women were talked to and treated at the Lincoln Project, really what they did with all the money that they raised and, and seeing that it really wasn't exactly put to the use that people thought it was. Um, I, I, I can only say that uh, I, I think that um, my that Harris's take is probably is probably right. I mean, not just because of the the poor way that everything was handled, but again, to save face and to try to uh, salvage some sort of a, a reputation for a number of the people who lead this organization. Yeah. Uh, I, I just have to admit, I thought they did brilliant work. I thought they would play a major role in the post-Trump American politics. Uh, I even sent them a check. <laughs> and now I think John Harris is right. They're going to be out of business. Um, this is this is certainly somewhat political. Uh, Leah, I want to ask you, I mean, almost every day now, the big drama in Washington is what's going to happen to Neera Tandon, President Biden's nominee to be uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget. Um, is she is she toast? Is she going to be the one cabinet nominee this time that uh, has to fall so the Republicans can kind of flex their muscle? I mean, it's not looking good for her. Uh, so far, Democrats have remained completely united in uh, confirming well, Biden's pick, not, except for Bernie Sanders. Who and has, Joe Manchin. And, well, in the votes that have come in so far. I'm sorry, so, yeah. The votes that have come in so far, basically Democrats haven't needed any Republicans in order to get things passed, except for you know, Bernie I Sanders, right. who's not technically a Democrat, um, registered as an, as an independent um, so they've been able to do this without any Republican support. And so there hasn't been a lot of reason for Republicans to mm -hmm. um, vote against them other than, you know, if you're Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz at this point, trying to prove that you're voting against as many people as possible, kind of like what Gillibrand did in 2016, which was one of her 2020 presidential messages. Um, now that, it, you know, it looks like for Democrats, it's not going to be united for Tandon. It looks like, you know, Republicans don't have a lot of reason to go ahead and 
vote to confirm her. Um, so that does seem like it's it's going to be a tough one. Yeah. I was at the White House briefing yesterday where, again, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the administration is totally behind her uh, and they're doing everything they can to line up uh, the necessary votes. But um, we're also it's also reported at the same time they are starting to look at uh, Plan B uh, because, as you say, it uh, it doesn't look good. Uh, a busy week on many fronts, but there's always something that makes uh, all of us in this news business stop and say, hey, that's funny or that's really interesting or, or that's worth spending a lot of time on. We call it your favorite story of the week. So um, what got your attention? Chris Liu, let's start with you. So this is a story from corporate America, but it has so many implications. Uh, Deshonda Brown Duckett was named yesterday uh, as the CEO of TIA, TIAA, the retirement and investment management firm. Uh, this is notable for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, uh, she's an African-American woman. Uh, for the past four years, there has not been an African-American woman CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Wow. Uh, there are now there are now two. Uh, Rosalind Brewer was named as the CEO recently of Walgreens. So that's number one. Uh, number two, this was kind of stunning to me. Um, since 1955, there have only been 19 African-American CEOs of a Fortune 500 company. Um, there are only 40 female CEOs of Fortune 500 companies currently. And this is the one that really kind of blew me away. Um, TIAA is the first company in Fortune 500 company uh, history uh, for the CEO reigns to pass from one African-American to another African-American. Hmm. Um, and wow. so uh, we applaud um, this appointment, but I think it also highlights very starkly uh, how much more progress needs to be made in corporate America. That is huge. I saw that 19 number uh, uh, yesterday and I thought, holy mackerel, right? <laughs> I, I thought we'd made a lot more progress than that. Obviously, obviously not. Uh, Leah, what caught your attention? There have been two members of Congress, one who has uh, was seated, uh, Ron Wright, and one who is not seated, uh, Luke Letlow, who have died after being diagnosed with COVID-19. Um, now, for both of those seats, uh, it looks like the wives of the late congressmen are going to be running. Um, so in Louisiana, we have uh, Julia Letlow, who is an administrator at the University of Louisiana Monroe, and uh, Susan Wright is going to be running for Ron Wright's seat. Susan Wright has some experience in Republican politics. So, I mean, it is just interesting because we've only had one sitting member of Congress um, die of COVID-19 and one who was about to be seated and we're seeing that trend. But also that's just been um, a kind of interesting way historically for women to um, enter Congress and for women to become involved in politics. Um, so it, it's something to watch out for. And again, just drawing attention to all of the 2021 primaries that will be taking place in the House as um, indicators of what the future of the Republican Party and, you know, in places where uh, there are Biden cabinet appointees who are uh, leaving open seats, what Democratic primaries are going to look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those two two races, particularly races to to watch. Uh, and Maya, Maya King, your favorite story of the week? 
Yes, my story is from the New York Times about a man named Calvin Tyler who dropped out of college in the 60s to become a UPS driver. And then Great quickly, story. Great yeah, story. Really great. And quickly worked his way up into the executive uh, level of, of UPS, made a ton of money, and gave $20 million back to the university that he dropped out of, Morgan State University, which is a historically black college in Baltimore. And was able to um, alleviate, or will be able to, I should say, alleviate the student loan debt of over 100 students, which is huge. Such a good, feel-good story. And also, um, you know, kind of ticks at the the political implications of this moment with President Biden saying that he would cancel up to $10,000 in federal debt for students and a number of Black and Latino students who tend to be uh, the largest borrowers of those who, who do take out student loan debts are saying, please take out more, <laughs> consider $50,000, consider $50, not just ten. Um, and so, yeah, I really enjoyed reading this story just to understand also that it fits into this trend that we're seeing now of a lot more philanthropic giving to historically Black colleges over the last 12 months. Um, and hopefully this encourages more philanthropy to Black colleges, but also I think um, I think we're going to see more more moves like this, and the media will continue to seize on it to say, you know, Biden potentially could do the same thing with the stroke of a pen. Yeah, I thought that was a great story, and I think it's his. I think it's the largest single grant ever to an historic yes. black college, right? It's, uh, yes, and, to Morgan State, it is, uh, and by an by an alumnus. Well, um, my favorite story of the week uh, is a little less. Uh, Let's maybe serious than any of the other ones that you mentioned, but you know we've all suffered because of the pandemic in various ways. And one of the things is we can't do all the stuff that we used to like to do and easily do, like going out to a movie, going out to a ball game, going out to dinner, uh, or tr- getting on a plane and taking a little trip. It turns out that that may be the thing that Americans miss the most is being able to travel. And there's this huge urge buildup to get back on a plane. So Travalgo, the travel website that you see on television advertising all the time, uh, they did a survey among Americans uh, about how anxious they are to get on a plane to take a trip in the near future. Get this, 48% of Americans said they would give up their job to take a trip in the near future. 25% say they would fork over their life savings for that. 20% said they would dump their partner to take a trip. And 38% said they would give up sex for a year uh, to be able to take a trip in the near future. Now, I don't know about the three of you, but um, I would love to take a trip in the near future. I'm not, <laughs> sh- <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready to go that far. Is that <laughs> as any of the rest of Americans, but just just throw that out there. So check your websites. By the way, there's always a question of who would take us in if we wanted to get on a plane, right? Where can, where can you go? All right. Hey, great roundup today. Great roundtable. Thank you so much, Maya King from Politico, Leah Skaranam from the National Journal Hotline, and Chris Liu uh, from the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Thank you all. Great panel today. And thank all of you for listening. Remember, we might have hit that 50 million mark uh, with the Biden administration, the vaccines, but uh, COVID-19 is far, far from over. Uh, So please be careful, wear that mask, continue to practice your social distancing, even if you've been vaccinated. Uh, And meanwhile, uh, stay strong, stay safe, 
and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Next Tuesday, we'll be back with an interview about COVID and about his new book called Keep Sharp with Dr. Sanjay Gupta from CNN. Until then, take care of yourself. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.